I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We have to watch must for the third time this summer. Promise that we will not be doing any impressions of people of color. Some impressions. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Nobody fucks with Mr. Jesus, as we say. If you you flash your piece on the lane, I'll take it away from you, stick it up your ass, and pull the trigger until it goes click. Oh, I think we can can do some accents, because we can do the Germans. Oh, yeah. We just basically... Yeah, we basically... Germans are people of no color. Yeah. Yeah. There's basically one accent we can't do. Yeah. Yeah, so there's but, one specific accent. One Is very there, specific so, accent we can't do. <laughs> I just don't want to, in talking about how John Turturro is not Mexican or Hispanic in any way. No. Uh, yeah, he, I mean, honestly, I think you can do the accent because he shouldn't have been doing it. So I'm taking it <laughs> back. Right? Yeah, I'm ironically wrong. Is that how thing. the math works? Because. <laughs> Technically, I'm, just I'm not my head while I'm doing the accent. I'm, I'm not because technically, I'm not appropriating. Although, by this logic, it also means that we could have done a Scarface accent because Al Pacino famously. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess I guess if you're not that race, you're not taking it back. You're just another white guy appropriating a racist accent. Probably, I think is how the math. Works out like works. you're you're below the denominator. Like there's no numerator <laughs> the whole time. Um, I, I also think the history of racist stereotypes is that like a white guy did it, and then yeah. another white guy was like, "That's pretty funny. I'm gonna do my own spin <laughs> on racism. <laughs> I'm gonna take this one for a spin myself." Yeah, uh, yeah. But where we love to watch from movie podcasts, we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. Uh, if you're looking at this week's selection, you may go, oh, they're still on their double month of dorm room posters. Au contraire. <laughs> uh, you would be incorrect. Although we did do this lovely bookend thing because High Fidelity and Big Lebowski were both movies that were in that group of like dorm room posters. And we figured out a way to like do them on the bookends of our double month because this could have been a dorm room poster movie uh but we are using it instead to kick off our shaggy la mystery month it's the dog days of summer it's the dog days of the we love to watch theme peter has informed me and i did the research um we're doing big lebowski we're doing the nice guys we're doing under the silver lake under the silver lake yeah i always want to call it under the silver moon Mm-hmm. And we're doing Inherent Vice. Those are our, our shaggy dog L.A. movies. Woof, woof. I did the research. The film The Shaggy Dog, starring fan favorite Tim Allen, mm-hmm. takes oh. place in L.A. Peter, Do you think it's a shaggy dog mystery film? I think it's a shaggy dog film. I think it's an L.A. shaggy dog film. That's what I think. And uh. 
Wow. The poster says Tim Allen is the shaggy dog. And let me read the text that Peter sent to me when I said, we, we have to do, obviously, the most shaggy dog L.A. story, which is shaggy dog. He said, um, hey, man, it's three in the morning. Uh, you overrode my do not disturb that I have on. This is a weird thing to be saying is an emergency and notifying my family. Um, feels pretty I did, definitive. I did threaten to swat you also if you didn't read my text. Yeah, well, the funny thing about, like, I think because we're each other's contacts, your do not disturb, it says notify anyway, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> like, it gives me that when you're on do not disturb, I can be like, yeah, no, this is important. Or, I did it. I did it once for something very stupid because we had just been talking and then like Tim and you and Jonas are like no I'm gonna I'm gonna notify him that this this follow up joke I don't I don't want it to get lost in his family time I'm gonna I'm gonna I want a little ping on his phone for this one yeah I have yeah. definitely I have definitely sent a very dumb text to Ryan Boland noticed that he had do not disturb on and I was like he's still awake <laughs> <laughs> see I'm uh I am the the meme. I saw a meme that was like being an elder millennial is uh, having your phone on vibrate since two thousand nine to the point that you have no idea what your ringtone is. <laughs> and that's true. I I have no idea what my my I have no text notifications that pop up on my actual phone, and I um uh, so I don't need to put do not disturb because my 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 phone doesn't recognize a text message regardless of the time of day. In a way, your phone is sort of like the lead character of the Big Lebowski in that he is undisturbed and has to be dragged into action at yeah. any given time. He eventually goes around, uh, uh, go, comes around to it like, I don't know, like a dog to a bone, like like if Tim Allen was hypothetically... <laughs> hypothetically. I mean, I haven't seen the movie. It said Tim yeah. Allen is the shaggy dog, but I guess, I mean... Technically, I don't know if he's actually transformed into a dog, or he's wearing a dog costume and pretending to be a dog. Maybe he, maybe a dog fell off his roof, and or he, put, he put on the dog hide as some sort of power move, which transformed him into the the Shaggy Dog claws, for mm. example, type situation. Like a, a Liberian warlord eating the heart of his enemy. Yeah. He killed the dog and put on its hide. <laughs> to absorb its power. To absorb its power. You have then, to absorb the power. But he you didn't just kill a dog. He didn't just kill a dog. He got to hurt the power. That is the shaggy dog claws. So he became an actual dog. My power is I have to shave every day. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, but we're not doing that one. We uh, and, and more specifically, we decided to do kind of more modern uh la shaggy dog there's so much i mean this this movie specifically is a the cohen's take on raymond chandler and 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 we might do a uh a a version of that but there's just so many good ones we really wanted to narrow it down and so doing movies of the last 25 years that fall into this category i think is a good way to like both segue from our previous month and just to kind of to kind of get in a few movies that we've we've always wanted to do. I think this is the perfect one to kick it off with because this is the one from 25 years ago. This is the one before like it's it's interesting like I know you just recently appeared as a guest uh, on a podcast talking about Inherent Vice, but like it was I haven't seen Inherent Vice for a while. 
but watch rewatching this for the first time in a long time, I was like, man, Inherent Vice owes so much to this movie. Like, it has its influences in a lot of different areas, but, like, that kind of, like, completely out of it person who's dragged along solving a mystery is, like, it's Paul Thomas Anderson's Big Lebowski. Like, so clearly. Yeah. And I think even the nice guys, which is something that I really wanted to do because we, we've done a lot of um, Shane Black movies and uh, and that was one that I absolutely love and I think it'd be fun to uh, to do that really is more of a, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang kind of falls into it, but we decided that's more of a Christmas. That Nice Guys is like a hot summer idiot solve crime yeah. <laughs> movie. And so like it almost it almost feels like I haven't seen Under the Silver Lake. But yeah. it, I don't know if the person who solves the crimes in that movie is an idiot. But if yes. not, you ha- then you have a very – we actually have a more narrowed down uh, because like fucking, you know, Elliot, Elliot Gould and Humphrey Bogart are cool dudes. They're good yeah. detectives. And our, our like neo shaggy L.A. detective movies are all kind of idiots. So, yeah, exactly. The theme of this that I wanted to kind of loosely connect together is the sort of idea of a... It's not just a hero, like, resisting the call. It's not just that. It's sort of a hero continually resisting the call and having to have their ass dragged through the plot. Um, it's, it's, It's more about the fact that these protagonists are in some sort of funk or arrested development, a depression... Um, sort of stuck in the past, like Dr. Portello and Inherent Vice, sort of uh, these characters that are sort of stuck in this um, this California, like, permanent summer. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of movies that fall on this, but I specifically wanted to skirt around, um, skirt around movies that have hyper-competent uh, detectives that happen to be operating in L.A., the entire point of these movies is that someone's out of their depth, but yeah. like someone being really the fuck out of their depth and kind of doesn't like kind of doesn't want to push the mystery forward is the yeah. key here. We're not yeah. talking about like the protagonist of I think it's a Phil, I think it's Philip Marlowe, but like the protagonist of Kiss Me Deadly, one of my favorite, oh, yeah. favorite noir of all time. That movie would not qualify. It's a movie I'd love to cover on the show. But yeah. that would not qualify. Well, same with like the he's... Big Sleeper, the Long Goodbye, because they are very competent, uh, smarter than the room detectives who sometimes have a complicated mystery to unfurl and get roughed around a bit. But they kind of end up being the smartest man at the room in the end of the movie, and they yeah. always start even like fucking you know Jack Nicholson from Chinatown too. Like he's got a complicated mystery, he solves it definitively, mm-hmm. and. Even when he gets roughed up, he has a, you know, they all have their witty one-liners. This is a movie, and I, I know Inherent Vice is like this too, like, when they get the shit kicked out of them or poisoned or kicked out of a car, like, their, their you know, their, their retort is just, hey, man, like, <laughs> I'm not that invested enough yeah. to, to go toe-to-toe to you, and you're just kind of hurting me. <laughs> like, yes. You're, you're correct. And the... the 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 entire point of this right is that these these stories i think are particularly interesting because these these characters are inherently more <laughs> relatable right mm-hmm. um and uh i think these stories are interesting because a lot of them are actually reacting to the genre itself and because they're not starring these hyper competent dudes um 
they end up, most of them end up being character pieces more than they end up being plot pieces. Yes. I think Nice Guys has pretty good plotting and Under the Silver Lake has a lot of crazy plot events. Like the movie's yeah. insane. I think Under the Silver Lake is probably the craziest movie we cover this month. Despite all of that, the plot is kind of secondary to a character journey. Um, and it's something I want to keep coming back to this month, which is like, is this, it, does this, how much does this mystery matter? Yeah. And how much does this mystery matter to the character? Because, like, the the most fun part about Big Lebowski is, like, it's showing it to someone for the first time, and they're like, why the fuck? If she was fine the whole time, why did I even watch this? And you're like, ah, exactly. Like, you you watched a character journey. You did not watch a plot. And people, this is a movie similar to Inher- Inherent Vice got hit with it, you know, almost two decades later. Um, not two decades later, but Inherent Vice got hit with it um, the better part of a decade and a half later. Um... But um, for a very similar reason, which is that both of these movies do, don't expect you to follow every single plot point and machination. They really want you to go on the mental journey of the characters. And the characters sometimes being a little uninvested in the plot is part of the journey. Like you're yeah. supposed you're supposed to kind of like kick You're supposed back to be a little bit frustrated of... that he is, yeah. you know, just kind of rambling and saying like to every single person, a lot of ins, a lot of outs. Like he doesn't love that line. Yeah, no, but he, he keeps saying it's the same thing to every- a very complicated case, Maude. Yeah. A lot of ins, yeah. a lot of outs. I got this new information. Like, it's <laughs> like, it's like, what Fortunately, I'm adhering to a very strict diet regimen to keep- <clears throat> Fortunately, I'm adhering to a very strict drug re- regimen to keep my mind limber. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, as we, to transition to, like, our experience watching this, so I, this was my second Coen Hunt Brothers movie. My first one was Fargo, which I saw a couple years after it came out, like, 97, 98, and I loved Fargo. I think it's, it's kind of a, a, maybe a pat answer, but I still think that Fargo may be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's just such a... It is like one of the best thrillers I've ever seen. You know, it has a lot of black comedy. It's got a lot of surprising moments, but like the twistiness and the um, the, the just kind of the patheticness of the people that are doing these crimes and stumbling on themselves. Like, you know, that's obviously that's a theme that the Coen Brothers go back to over and over about these inept crooks. Um, but Fargo's different in that, like, there's a hyper-competent, wonderful character in the center who's kind of not just navigating the world of these inept doofuses who are committing horrible crimes and getting people killed, but also someone who has a lot of uh, empathy for the world. She almost it's, – it's so funny. She's, she's like a Midwestern version of Morgan Freeman's character from Seven in a lot of ways is the way yeah. I've always thought of it. Like, you know, she's like, I, there is beauty in this world, but you fellas are really messing it up. And so it was my first Coen Brothers movie and I fell in love inter- instantly with them and, you know, started watching more things. And so my second movie, which made sense just chronologically and because it had, you know, John Goodman and Steve Buscemi, like a lot, you know, it had kind of their their people, a lot of the same people that I saw in Fargo was this. And I didn't know what to make of it when I first saw it. I recognized scenes in isolation as funny, like whether it's the urn scene or just, you know, some of the 
random acts of violence, like the cop throwing the beer bottle at Lebowski's head or, you know, Walter's constant blow-ups at people. But I found the experience very frustrating, not just because it felt like the characters were very frustrating. to Like, spending time with Walter, who just constantly focuses on the wrong thing, no matter what. If he's focused on the case, he's he's focusing on... He's the most annoying friend you've had in the entire world. And when he's should be focusing on the case and is focusing on, like, other things and, and bowling and other things, that is, like, it's just... Performative Judaism when he's not Jewish. <laughs> I know. Just an incredible amount of frustration. You have, like, characters that can't get a word in edgewise. You have a mystery that... that is tough to follow and never seems to go anywhere. And you have a main character leading you through it that is like, again, barely invested, never ask the questions you want to ask because he literally is just saying, okay, okay. I I like I didn't really like it. And I, I actually think that's a very common experience with The Big Lebowski. I've heard from many people mm-hmm. that the first time they watch The Big Lebowski because, uh, especially if you're a little bit younger, you're focusing on all the wrong things. There are so many plot machinations that are being introduced to you that you are trying to, like, uh, you know, do the thing that you shouldn't do in movies, which is I need to stay one step ahead of this plot. I need to keep track of where this money is and who these people are and what they're trying to get to. And this movie, and for what it's worth, even stuff like The Big Sleep and I think Chinatown and The uh, the Long Goodbye work better with this, Uh is because once you recognize that you know where the plot is going, it's that second time that is really eye-opening because you're like, oh, now that I don't need to care about any of this, all these little wonderful moments and all these little character beats and all these little like weirdos that populate this world, I can now turn my attention on because I've kind of gotten through that surface letter. It's like you learn to breathe underwater after the initial shock of jumping into the ocean and now you're watching it unfold, and it's it's wonderful because of that. But, you know, I, going in expecting a Fargo, expecting something that was, you know, had twists and turns, but, like, had a, had a point. And you're right. This movie, the point of this movie is a parody of those, of those other mysteries in, the very, in a very Coen Brothers version of that, which is, yeah, none of this really matters. The mystery doesn't matter. Nothing really bad happens to most people, minus, of course, Steve Buscemi's character. And at the end, they haven't learned any lessons. They haven't... No one's gotten any better. There's literally a cowboy character there to make fun of the idea of learning a lesson from this. There's literally a narrator <laughs> yeah. there to be like, be like, man, we really learned a lot today. And you're like, yeah. did we? Yeah. Well, <laughs> his lesson is, and like the, 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 the feeling you're supposed to get of like, I feel pretty good knowing that guy's out there. Just... Not caring about things. Good to know about it. Like it is. It, it's yeah, so silly. I was gonna say Fargo's my favorite. My favorite Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. No, it's it's this. this. I just the fact that the gall to have a cowboy character in this, whose entire point is like, you know. Why are you? Why are you trying to make a peace with the chaos of the universe? Well, and part of the reason they did that is because in most of those Philip Marlowe type. M- movies they ha- they always have a narrator that's that's kind of commenting on things but the narrator is the detective and the coen brothers specifically were like we don't want fucking the dude to be we don't want you to let you into his thought process because if we let you into his thought process 
it's either going to be boring or we don't want him to have revelations or commentary because the whole point is that what you see is what you get. There is no deeper. He just exists. Yeah, there is no deeper. <clears throat> just, so he yes. just exists. He he he. The, the point of a narrator is sort of like omnipotence or um, omniscience, more 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 um, accurately. Like the idea is, it's someone who's like they they either know all this stuff or while they're talking to you, they're having breakthroughs and revelations. And I think that's that's you know Morgan Freeman. Is like somebody's like while he's talking, he's like, I guess maybe that's why Andy Dufresne, yada yada. Yeah, um, that, I mean that's him in seven too. Like, he, yeah, you don't, yeah. you don't want, you yeah. don't, you don't want you don't. the dude to have it. You want, the dude literally is just a, a figure of existence. He's he's. We're gonna talk a bit about it, but like the dude has actually been weirdly adopted by like um, Buddhists trying to talk about. Um, uh, the idea of, like, Zen Koan and, like, the idea of, like, existence. And the fact that, like, he is constantly seeking out this this sense of inner peace, this sense of existence, while everyone else is trying to drag him off of his path is incredibly <laughs> funny. Like, yeah. that... He, he, like, sure, he's not actually the Buddha, but, like... People yeah, he gets, of, like, he gets angry and frustrated constantly, which is even... Called out at one point when he's yelling at Walter and he's like, I forget the exact line, but it's something like, what happened to all of your Eastern pacifist philosophy? Yes. When, when like, this, which is such an do. asshole thing Calmer to say to someone. Do. Yeah. <laughs> Calmer than you do. Calmer yeah. than you. Um, but, but yeah, like, it, so they, they're, they're fixed for that is like, hey, we still need the person who's like, you know, has like the meaty, uh, table setting, setting setting, like dialogue and everything else. And so they put the random cowboy character with Sam Elliott, who just somehow knows the whole story, which is its own joke, constantly loses the point and the thread because he can't really make one out mm-hmm. of anything. And then it, just at the end of it, it's just like, I just feel good knowing this guy's <laughs> out there, which is so... It's so it's so good. This like I met multiple dudes with the t- with the uh, tattoos that said the dude abides. Yeah, and it's sort of like a, a like a comforting thing for them. And honestly, I've seen a lot of dumb tattoos before. I have no problem with it. Yeah, I I mean this this bears a lot of similarity to our dorm room poster month because a it is in that same film bro canon and has dorm room posters, but also some of the worst people you know probably overquote this. This It doesn't take away from how good the dialogue and the delivery is. Like, shut the shut the fuck up Donnie stuff, and like, it doesn't matter how many times you've seen it on a t-shirt, the movie is good enough to overcome the overuse of it by, by yeah. society. Is this the yeah. only Coen Brothers movie that probably has raked in a good amount of money in merch? Probably like the, I mean the amount of like uh, there's no po- Miller Miller's Crossing Trilby hat, right? <laughs> no, there should be. There should be more Martin Fink. I think <laughs> merchandise. Um, I do want to. While we're here, I, something you said I, I want to touch on really quickly. You said this is a movie that you didn't like love the first time you watched it, but now you love it. I didn't really like it all that much yeah. the first time I watched it. The first time it. I watched it, I really liked it, but I didn't get it at all. Yeah. Um, I just thought it was funny, like. Yeah, I, yeah, I like, that's yeah. Um, and then as I watched it, every time that I've watched it, I've liked it a little bit more. Um, and it's definitely a movie that's a grower rather than a shower, yeah. if you pardon the parlance. Um, and I think a lot of movies this month are actually growers rather than showers. They 
alienated audiences when they were first out. People were like, what the fuck was I supposed to get out of that? Like, that's a depressing ending. Or, like, yeah. people were frustrated by it, And then over time, the inner workings of them started to reveal themselves to the audience. And a lot of that is letting go of plot and focusing on character. Um, and a lot I mean, of that, that is the key is... to any version of a shaggy dog <laughs> mystery movie. Like, these... It's going to be every movie this month. These movies, I, I can think of, like, a couple, even, like, older ones, like A Kiss Me Deadly that I loved upon first viewing. But, like, even, like, The Big Sleep, I don't think I loved the first time I saw it. Because it is just, like, who are all of these people? Like, you know, and once you see it again and, like, can get past all that, it's almost like, which was also, like, my, when I realized that with Big Lebowski, it made going back and watching The Long Goodbye and The Big Sleep and stuff like that, it made those easier to watch. Because you kind of have to, like program yourself to say don't pay attention to where this is going it probably doesn't ultimately matter like you think yeah. even even like the you know the original classic like you know mystery like do you know who stole the maltese falcon i don't fucking remember and i've seen that movie three or four times it's yeah. a great movie but who it doesn't matter who cares you're not you're not watching it to find out who actually took the maltese falcon you're not watching it to like you know, the mystery is is secondary to being the way to kind of get into it. it in some ways, it, it has that Twin Peaks thing, right? Like, Twin Peaks was very much never meant to initially solve the murder of Laura Palmer because it was like, you know, David Lynch and Mark Frost were doing this. They were like, we're going to do this method of being like, we're going to get to know this weirdo town and these mm -hmm. characters and all the different plots and machinations. And like, who killed La Laura Palmer is just our entry point to this. Like, what what happened to Bunny is just the entry point to this, to the Big Lebowski world. And the sooner you know to forget all of the other stuff, the easier it is to really enjoy what the movie is trying to do. But like me, and like a lot of people... The first time they see The Big Lebowski is probably the first time they've seen this, like, yeah. type of movie. And, and that was true. I think maybe I had seen Chinatown before The Big Lebowski, but that's probably the only type of this movie that qualifies, whether it's a... Is someone stumble-fucking through a mystery. Yeah, or just <laughs> even, even a complicated Philip Marlowe-type mystery yeah. plot. And let's, I mean, let's focus on the authors for 30 seconds, right? Yeah. David Lynch, Mark Frost was more of a traditional writer, but he definitely is not to be discounted in terms of weirdness. Like he, he had a lot of the best weirdest ideas for, for Twin Peaks. Um, David Lynch's writing style that he admitted to later is like, I put down, I write down 60 scenes and I put them each on a note card and I describe the scene a little bit and then I shuffle them around until I have a movie. And that's not necessarily how he wrote all of Twin Peaks, but that shows you that he's not really focused on logical plotting. He's, show, he's focused on, like, how can I take you through a journey? Let's focus on Raymond Chandler a lot of, and a lot of the noir, pulpy writers of his time. All alcoholics. Um, some of them were into stuff deeper than alcohol, but essentially all of them were alcoholics. And they uh, had to get their writing out quick enough to get their paycheck to pay for their alimony or their next trip to the liquor store or other obligations and duties they had. So they were writing their stories just like, not necessarily stream of consciousness, but just being like, I got to get this out quick. And they would leave loose ends and threads and they would leave yeah. these sort of wild, wild loose edges. These red and herrings and 
and, other and that's why yeah. the stories are very tight. Like there'll be 120 pages, but like your mind is just chugging the whole time, right? Um, yeah. Let's talk about um, who's the <laughs> I almost said Mark David Chapman. Who's the guy who wrote Under the Silver Lake? Uh, David. Those. It's not David Gordon Green. It's uh, it is. It's a, it's a three name guy. He has well, not assassinated David anyone. Robert Mitchell. God damn it! Two, sorry, two R. Two R. Robert. <laughs> Wait, but but well, hold on, really quickly before you move on from that, it also the fact that a lot of those writers like Raymond Chandler were like heavy alcoholics trying to get in their next story. It also informs kind of the world of these you know, private eyes, whether uh, conscripted private eyes or purposeful private eyes, is that they exist in a world of like hazy alcoholism, or ha- mm-hmm. so that kind of that kind of style. That once they started making movies with this type of tone, it really it does well in that kind of like boozy L.A. Like man, you know, everyone's in a brownout all the time. Yes. Like where does yeah. this thing connect to this? I don't know. It's like a drunken night and trying to put back the pieces. And like that was the writing style because that's who those people were too. And that's people the world were trying to forget. Their time in the trenches, their time yeah. at Normandy, their first the marriage. Great Depression. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they're the dame to, that got away. They're trying to forget like really hard shit, but also just like shit they fucked up on their own. Um yeah. and uh God damn it, now I forgot the guy's name. I will have it right by that episode. David Robert Mitchell, um his his movie when you see it, and I don't want to get too deep into it, is essentially like he wants you to get lost in this conspiracy theory huddle all of these this webs inner of inner lake interlinking um plot points just go, going bananas on each other um that is an, an author who clearly like got into the mystery and then got ahead of himself just obsessing in a sort of mentally unhealthy way about how much can i pack into the story and thomas pynchon we don't know a ton about him personally but we do know that he experienced the 60s yeah. um and uh, we know that when he's he's writing something like Inherent Vice, that Thomas Pynchon is not trying to, um, he's trying to react to old mystery stories. He is not in any way trying to replicate the cleanest way to get through a plot. What he's trying yeah. to do is make take you to a time and place. And times and places are rough and messy and memories are fucked up and hazy. And that like the way that the past um, warps your future is a um a beautiful thing and a horrid thing in equal measure and like uh and i think shane black just wrote a pretty rad movie that kind of exists in the scene i don't think i don't think shane black has substance issues or, or is particularly haunted but <laughs> um, i think he had a lot of fun when he, when a lot I mean, of fun he, doing his entire his focus on like the dialogue of that world and like so much i mean that's kind of been Shane Black's like obsession uh, in a couple different movies, and so like, yeah. The, the, but you're right. Like the nice guys, the nice guys does exist in the like two idiots trying to piece together a plot antagonistically to each other. That that you know Shane Black can't help but write a compelling story to some ways, but but uh, it still kind of it it kind of works through that. Yeah, and and I think that while we're here, like that's going to be a theme of the month is kind of like people getting lost in their own. The people that are telling the stories are getting lost in their own shit. And then the other thing is is like, you know, obviously these movies are growers versus showers, but like, if you attach yourself too tightly to the plot, just while we're here, 
these movies are very frustrating. Maybe not nice guys, but all the rest of them are very frustrating if you attach yourself too close to the plot. And even with nice guys, like, if you're not aware of, like, 70, the 70s auto world, yeah. <laughs> you may end up sort of hitting your head against the wall. It, but, like, if you sort of take comfort in the, like, laggard kind of pace of these movies and the way that they sort of just stumble and wander forward... These movies can be very, I think, very like comforting. I, I find yeah. I find the pace of Big Lebowski and Inherent Vice in particular extremely comforting. I find these movies like like right now, like while we're recording this, like the sun is setting, like the, I can see the sunset out through this window. It's like a su- nice Southern California summer afternoon and like that feeling, that vibe of just like the day washing all, all over you um is is those movies it's that comfort and and you can either let the day wash over you or you can like fight and resist against the sun going down and it's not going to be a fun time for you well it also exists so well because in that comfort zone because it's episodic like all these movies are really episodic to the most part and like you know being able to enjoy a scene in a vacuum is like it's so wonderful that that gets frustrating the first time you watch this movie but as you watch it being like oh i can't wait to get to this moment or this moment and like they almost they they do exist connected but the main connective tissue is is the dude right like that that is the connective tissue and that's from my memory of inherent vice and even the nice guys it's like them just wandering through this this world and you getting a little taste of of it. You know, one of the commentaries on why Pulp Fiction was such a successful movie is it tapped into this bigger world where everyone deserves a story and you're already getting a taste. Like from the opening of, you know, uh, uh, Jules, uh, you know, talking to Vincent, they're referencing characters that they know that we don't know. It feels like a lived in world. And this this really is of a piece with that. Like. They all of these people, whether it's the police in Malibu who have like some very clear frustration with like beach bum outsiders or Jackie Treehorn or the nihilist who used to be porn actors like you don't get a ton of each of them. But like Punch Drunk Love or like the best L.A. or like crime syndicate or like vast canvas movies, you just get this sense that behind every door is another bizarre character that is like unique and interesting, whether they're in the movie for three minutes or like ten minutes. Like one of the things I noticed this time more than ever is like David Thewlis is like just a guy laughing occasionally on the Mm -hmm. let's it's like. What considered it, one of the greatest British actors of his generation is at ninety eight too. Like this, he's, to, to he's not like doing bit hot. parts. Yeah, yeah. But it does. It's it's weird. Like Maude Lebowski, obviously. Like when you first meet him, she's an artist and she's eccentric. And then you have this scene where it's taking place in like almost a little mini horror movie where there's a John Waters type who just picks up the phone and laughs hysterically, and you're like, what the fuck? What does she do with her time? Like that and that kind of like, who are all these people? Like even like the fact that you find out that Bunny is like a high school girl that ran away and there's the P- the private eye who's in the movie for three minutes. And the fact, and like the, the parents gave him the picture of Moorhead, Minnesota. <laughs> I, I, I also love the Coen brothers cause they're Midwest boys. And like, they know that Moorhead, Minnesota feels like that. and does not look like that, but like, here's the four, you know, here's the, 
here's the Moorhead, Minnesota farmhouse, and like it's just this dust, you know, this this bleak, Laura Zingle Wilder type existence, and like all those things are just like there's parents out there who thought not only do we miss our child, this will make her want to come home, and like it, it, it's 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 not shallow. It is every character is deep. Even if you, as an audience member, only get to dip above the surface for a second. And, like, that's what makes movies like this so fascinating is that everyone is interesting. There's no uninteresting character. They made a whole spinoff of Jesus who is in the movie for maybe two and a half minutes. Like, he has one. You know the story behind Oh, I do. Why he made the movie, like... Yeah, it, feel, it feels very sad. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I meant why he's even in this. Oh so no, I coach- I know that he lo- like he spent forever on the characters in the movie for two and a half minutes, and like was so invested in the character that he begged the Coen Brothers for years to make a sequel to The Big Lebowski, and when they were like, "Absolutely not, we're not doing that," he begged them to give the rights for this character because like th- that's an example of like yes, it does feel like there's a whole story behind Jesus the character that the Coen brothers dip in and leave the rest as a mystery. And while I haven't seen Jesus, the Jesus rolls, uh, all the reviews tell me it's also a good example of why a taste of an interesting character is much different than spending two hours yeah. with a child molesting bowler. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and eight year olds, dude. Um, the, the, no, he's a the, the story behind that basically is that the Coen brothers saw John Turturro in a play when they were friends, like ten, they they've been friends yeah. for like because he, he was in Barton Fink, yeah. But he was yeah. They've been in uh, Miller's Crossing, obviously. He's yeah. he's amazing in that. Um, but he, they saw him in a play about ten years prior, and he was playing a Hispanic character. And they're like, we have to have him play a Hispanic character on film. And then they were like, okay, not only are you playing a Hispanic character. He was like, great. Yeah, I'll do, you know, I love you guys. You've been my friends for forever. I'll do whatever you want. Now you're playing in a span character. They later broke the news that he was a, a, a pederast, uh, to borrow a, borrow a, a, a phrase from, from Walter. Um, and, uh, apparently he was like, I didn't know if I was actually gonna be in the movie or if they were just fucking with me, but I got to set. I spent a good amount of time on my wardrobe, but he designed the Coke nail. He, he designed all of it. Yeah. He, uh, essentially everything. His hair, he grew it out. The goatee, he grew out on his own. Like, uh, so much. Basically, it sounds like basically 90 plus percent of the choices were from him. Yeah. And he was doing ridiculous shit. There's all these, like, so shots of him, like, slowly rolling up his socks and licking the, yeah. The, yeah. the bowling ball. And, uh, he was like, this character has no effect on the script. I've read the script. Yeah. He was convinced they were just doing this to like throw him a few under a hundred bucks or kind of like just play around, just like, yeah, get a friend around. in for a sec, yeah. And and then he was like, they included everything we said, yeah. Which I I have to admit, I you know okay. So for Scarface, we spent a good amount of time. I spent I said a few nice things about Al Pacino's performance. Um, I, but largely we, we called out in that episode a lot that it's just kind of like a racist caricature of Cubans and like, it's not, it's not cool. Like it's, it's, it's not cool. It's, it's, it's actually probably had a fairly negative impact on the way white people look, view at Hispanic men. Um, for, uh, Jesus in the movie, 
Um, I I guess I have no principles because he's the funniest character. In the he movie. is. Yeah, he was one of the highlights when I initially saw it too. Like that that scene is so bizarre and so funny, and the the way the way the slow motion weirdness transitions to a dance in time with a Spanish cover of Hotel California, which is. <laughs> It, I mean, it's just wonderfully I love the dawning bizarre. horror in my head that I was like, oh my god, this is a cover of Hotel California. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which, of course, is a horror to our, our protagonist, too, who hates, yes. who rightly hates the Eagles. Um, we're already getting into it. Let's, uh, let's start getting into the wonderful plot of The Big Lebowski. Sure, man. Let's do it. going through the plot and this makes a ton of sense let's follow we'll, characters let's, let's follow, follow let's follow characters yeah let's let's not let's not do the thing where we're like we're like well and then oh, no actually he meets the detective yeah, after the whole point is it doesn't matter but we'll, we'll go through the characters and, and how that works so let's let's start this movie came out in 1998 it, it takes place in 1991 uh there's a lot of critiques about how this has a you know a very strong, actually, like, for the Coen brothers, like, political message. Like, um, you know, there's a lot of background around Desert Storm and the war in Kuwait. And you have Walter, who's kind of the stand-in to the neocons, um, who's, like, parroting and, and using lines that George H.W. Bush said about why they needed to go uh, go to war. Some of the commentary I've seen around it is that while, like, Walter and some of those efforts, like represent the kind of neoconservative movement um at the time the dude sort of represents like the ineffectualness of liberals about like just kind of like yeah whatever man like occasionally being aware of it but like not really taking a stand one way or the other while all of the people the neocons and the ineffectual liberals uh remind you how much they were against uh a previous uh, war that was a waste of everyone's time in in, in Vietnam, and not surprisingly, a lot of these commentaries came out as people were watching this movie in the second Iraq War in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and going, "Man, this this does feel ahead of its time in in like a commentary on like this the the way our culture both kind of ignores it happening in the background, and then depending on your point of view." incorporates some of the philosophies around like this cannot stand man or or this aggression you know, cannot yeah. stand man. Like, he doesn't realize he's parroting George yeah he, he just he just heard it somewhere right because he's not all that in depth yeah. but anyways uh yeah so I do, it starts while we're here really yeah. quickly like i don't have a I, I have i have some interest in having that conversation I've watched this movie, like, maybe two dozen times. I don't know. I have literally never extended the effort to be, like, turn Walter into a symbolic figure <laughs> yeah. for a new... I, as soon as I start this movie, these characters are people. They're real people. They remind yeah. me of people I know. Like, I I have a hard time... How, how many I have a hard time people, boiling this who's down. Who's your Walter in your life? <laughs> I grew up in the Midwest. I knew a lot of guys who. Well, who yeah. Walter. So 
the part that connected to me, which obviously wasn't a commentary on at the time, but like Walter is the worst person on every Twitter thread and the worst person in every like trying to win, you know, technical points are the most important po- points or to make everyone so annoyed that they just kind of give up. But like that, it's not a commentary on that type of person in the interspace of of the web. It's a commentary of those types of people existing in real in, in real life. Like Walter is such a specific person, and yeah, actually, like I I hate saying this, but like one of one of the problems I think the first time I watched this movie is that Walter reminded me so much of someone so specific that like it was a little bit hard to uh, enjoy the John Goodman performance. And like and everything else, because it's like God, this is that guy Josh that was my neighbor for seven years. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, it starts with uh, with Sam Elliott narrating about the dude, and he loses his train of thought almost immediately about why why he was telling this story. And the dude is you 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 get to know him pretty quick. He's buying uh, half and half to make white Russians. He, it's seventy cents. Um, he is in there with flip-flops and a bathrobe and those shorts that look like boxer shorts and an old t-shirt. And he's drinking the half and half before he does it. Like, you have a sense of who this person is almost immediately, even without the great Sam Elliott narration that's kind of explaining, you know, who the dude is and the story he's about to uh, embark on. It's it's so funny that like if you watch Jeff Bridges before performances before The Big Lebowski, he's always been a little bit of a like, you know, took too much LSD guy. But you watch like Fearless or The Fisher King or you know, he's not playing the dude. He is He's a different he's, guy. He's a totally different guy. What's so funny about Jeff Bridges after The Big Lebowski is it feels like he incorporated this person into him as a person. And so, like, when you we, we commented on that on Tron Legacy when we watched it. Like, when you watch the original Tron, he's, like, trying to be a Kurt Russell type. And then you watch Tron Legacy, and he's like, what if the big Lebowski was in the Tron world? And then you see him, like, give, uh, like, award. Like, you see him give speeches or interviews. He's like, he, he morphed into the big Lebowski. And like, I don't know if that was like some sort of, um, part of his personality that he tapped into that performance for this. And like that, he just really liked being in that headspace and kind of stayed in it to some effect. But I don't know if you've noticed that. Cause like when you watch fearless or some shit, you're like, this is a different guy than every other performance after this movie. And that's a little bit of hyperbole, but it does feel partially true. It feels like it imbued the DNA. They're not necessarily all slackers or whatever. No, but like the, the it's the cadence and the the verbiage. Yeah. Yeah. I specifically am thinking of like all the Western or Neo Western roles that he took on in recent years. Um, Particularly, like, Hell or High Water and True Grit, right? Yeah. Which are obviously, like, my two favorite performances of him, like, for, since this. Um, yeah. Um, just because of my particular proclivities. You know, um, like, Crazy Heart? Uh, Crazy Heart is a great performance. No, he's oh, I, fine. I, I, I didn't even see it. Um, he's really good in it. But th- neither of those movies, he's not quite a slacker, but he, this sort of easygoing way of talking and that sort of, sort of cadence has it has imbued his performances in a way like I watched um, American Graffiti um, uh, a few months ago. Yeah, and I had never seen it, and I was just oh. like, 
this is a different guy. Um, you watch Tron? This is a different guy. Yeah. You watch, yes, Fisher King? This is a different guy. Yeah. And then after this, it feels like, yeah, and, and I do have an inside source of somebody that worked on Tron Legacy um, who was like, oh, yeah, Jeff, or <laughs> Jeff Bridges would go to his trailer. He'd get high. He would find some sort of inspiration. He'd yeah. be at set on time. He was perfectly respectable. Yeah. He wasn't he wasn't slurring his words or whatever, but like he'd get high and just like talk about computers and shit. Yeah, and I mean go, go watch his 2010 Academy Award, or maybe it wasn't 2010, whatever Crazy Heart came out, 2011. His Academy Award acceptance speech is just like, yeah, man. Wow, this is a heck like uh, or it's just like that's what Jeff Bridges is light smoking pot, and he smoked pot for Big Lebowski, and then never stopped. And so, like, <laughs> I, I don't know, but it, it is. Uh, I mean, he's so good in so many movies, but it's like it is so fucking funny to go back and watch The Fisher King and Fearless, and just be like, yeah, it's like a, it's it's like he had his nom. <laughs> In the movie Big Lebowski, which made him more calm and peaceful, like it's, it's like a reverse, it's knob. a reverse knob. Yeah. Knob, yeah, yeah. Because it, that is something from the production. Like, you know, it's easy for people in in the candid DVD specials to be like, uh, "Oh my gosh, we just had so much fun making this comedy." But like, uh, in interviews with John Goodman years later, he's like, "I it never felt like work. We yeah. we would come to set." The Coens had all of the big decisions figured out. I It was never stressful to, like, it was never stressful to figure out blocking or where we were going to shoot the scene and where in the bowling alley they were going to film that. Like, it was basically like they had to have figured all that shit out beforehand. They had worked with us in rehearsals. Um, yeah. And now, almost was, everyone here besides Jeff Bridges is a Coen brother ringer from other movies, too. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and it is surprising that Jeff Bridges has only been in two of them. But two of them, you know, the sort of performances that you can rest an entire career on. Well, yeah. And, like, John Goodman, they wrote it for him. Steve Buscemi, they wrote it for him. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they... Peter Stuttgart. <laughs> yeah. They, they kind of just wrote all these parts. And the only two, I mean, besides, like, Bunny... The only two parts that they really had trouble casting were the two Lebowskis. Like they really wanted Gene Hackman for the um, the other Jeffrey Lebowski, and they <laughs> they kept auditioning people. And it's it's one of those things where you can see a lot of people as Jeffrey Lebowski. Um, you can't see anyone else as as the dude. Like it is it is it it, it like I said, it became so much a part of him that he seems. Uh, it seems like the character never fully left. Uh, yeah. He's he's still doing the method acting. He's like, yeah. look, I'm just never going to get out of this character. And now I play Jeffrey Lebowski uh, if he's in a Western or is in the Tron world. And David, David Huddleston hasn't done a ton of... I mean, he's done some dramatic work like in brian's song and stuff but he's um he's re- i mean large- he's really good in this movie he's so good but he's largely a comedic actor right like the most recent thing i think about i mean he's in blazing saddles obviously the most recent yeah. thing i think about him being in um is uh it's always sunny in philadelphia's christmas special where he plays oh, yeah. he plays like a another old fucking asshole that frank used to hang out with yeah. Um, oh yeah and who's had like a turn of heart apparently at the beginning of the this like special where he's like ready to to make amends for all the sins he's done and Frank's like no I I, I this guy sucks I yeah. know this guy yeah. sucks <laughs> yeah. like yeah, but... 
he's really great as this piece of shit that's in, in trying to reform himself. And then he was in a bunch of like, you know, shootout movies like uh, McHugh, um, you know, like he's he's a he's a, a really good actor in this, and he really nails this movie. Had loves dramatic dichotomies for comedy's sake, right? Obviously, the biggest one is um, Jeff, and oh, excuse me, the dude <laughs> and Walter, um, who are essentially like a, ma- a married couple, a dysfunctional marriage. Yeah. Like they can't quite separate from each other, but they are so fundamentally different that yeah. like. They don't quite. They don't quite know how to coexist without yelling at each other. Like that—that that is their existence. Yeah. But well, like, that's. I mean, that's after, Walter's existence with everyone. Yeah. Walter, yes. played by John Goodman, who plays a literally the worst. I mean, just he's not the worst person you've ever met, but he is the most annoying. He gets angry too quickly. You can't reason with him. He's more concerned with being right. He like the the epitome of he was his, a January six. Yeah, he's definitely a January sixth. If his um, heart didn't give out in in the in the twenty something years between, yeah, yeah. absolutely, hundred percent, thirty years, I, sorry. like the perfect like. I mean, all of his scenes epitomize who he is as a character. The the most one of like, if you want, like, who is this person? It's the scene in the coffee house where he starts screaming about Nam, and Jeff Bridges is like, "What does this have to do with Nam?" And the coffee person's like, "Hey, can you stop screaming and swearing about the boys dying face like as a family?" And he's like, "The Constitution," and like, the dude leaves. And he just to prove a point is like I'm finishing my coffee as loudly as he can. Like there's he's he's alienated his friend. Everyone in this coffee house hates him. He is unaffected. He is so confident in whatever he's doing at any moment that like like nar- narcissism isn't even a word because like you in narcissism I think you're aware other people exist. Like he he doesn't care that other people exist. He's not trying to impress people. He, yeah. He just, like, is so either a combination of confidence and insecure in his own in his own life that he does, does, not, does not care at all. He, doesn't care if he's, he's disruptive. Not, doesn't care if exactly he goes George to jail. Costanza, yeah. But he is a George Costanza in the sense that yes. we all, like, movies don't aren't, and TV aren't very good at depicting just the weird middle-aged guys that all of us know. And, yeah. like, it, there's, there's either creeps. Or they're sexy middle-aged guys, basically, right? There's, yeah. like, two two categories. And I really love this guy in the sort of George Costanza tier, where it's like... Yeah. But if George Costanza be, got divorced... Yes. People and was can it now? be so, like, complex in their oddity, and yet so relatable, right? Like, the fact that Larry David was like, oh, yeah. Like, Larry David was like, oh, yeah, that weird thing that, that everyone's making fun of in the writer's room? I did that. That's why I wrote George doing that. Like, Yeah, and he would get angry at people for being like, what do you mean that's a weird thing to do? Like, yes. he understands it's funny and silly, which is why he's writing into the show, but is naturally defensive because he's like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, of yes. course you, you would do that. He um, thinks it's funny you're not supposed to do that. And that that cru- that crucial the crucial. But he thinks it's but... logical. He he yes. thinks he he's justified for his own belief. Let's which talk is, about Walter. The, yeah. So the, yeah, the Walter character he is divorced. He runs a security company. Runs a security company. He still he 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 was in Vietnam, which is a central part of his, his life still. Which crucially ended fifteen years before this movie was set. <laughs> yeah. Um, he is the Oliver Stone if Oliver Stone started a security company and not uh, made a, made Salvador. Um, but he, 
um, he is divorced. We never see his ex-wife. But he, like, the fact that he was ever married is sort of funny. And he's not interested in dating. He is still committed to the marriage routine, which includes watching the dog and being and converting to to Judaism, of which he just kind of uses as a cudgel over other people. Like, yes. um, like I don't, I don't want to like dismiss the idea that like he clearly like, but you know, he has that scene where he's like talking about like my people didn't wander the desert for three thousand years, which is like the incorrect time frame. It's like that. <laughs> it's like that Seinfeld joke, where it was five thousand years. Five thousand years, even better. Like with the, <laughs> the Tim Watley thing. It's it's the same. It's kind of the same joke about like he it, he likes it to hold over people's head and to say, "Here's why I can't do anything," and then when people don't ascribe to that or make the right allowances i'm gonna freak the fuck out at them for not but it's it's so like that that scene of like this guy has been inserting himself into this plot and getting it wrong every moment and then finally the dude has a break in the case and he calls walter for a ride near the end of the movie and he's like this better be an emergency and he breaks down like the entire plot of the movie finally he goes i get that dude I get it. How does any of that count as an emergency? Like, this is a man who destroyed someone's car and is using pre-internet or early internet ways to go and attack a 15-year-old kid in Stockholm. <laughs> and he's like, I just need a ride to this place to solve the entire mystery. He's like, how is that an emergency? And it's like, <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? I yeah, it's it, and, he and, is it's the best John Goodman character. It is so it's it, iconographic. It, it, it makes yeah. there are people that you meet in real life that you're like that person's like Walter Sobchak. Yeah, it's the George yeah. Costanza thing where you're like you're acting like George Costanza right now. Yeah. This, yeah. this this iconographic performance where you watch the movie once or twice and then you're like, I know exactly what kind of guy you're talking about. Mm. Thank you for putting him on screen. <laughs> now yeah, I can. Yeah. Now that we've isolated this, I know I know how to treat him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny too because John Goodman wanted to have a um, a longer beard. He wanted to, you know, be a little bit more shaggy, like the dude in the Coen Brothers were so insistent on. Like, you need that chin strap that doesn't fit your face and a crew cut. Like, mm-hmm. like you're still ready for war and ready to fight at any point. And it is so perfect. The stupid vest he wears, like. It is, I mean, so much of the Coen the Cone Brothers' brilliance is, like, making these characters and making them, you know, perfect in any way. They're kind of like the less in-your-face Wes Anderson, where, like, they're very specific and meticulous. But, you know, they don't frame every shot in a perfect square and, and write down what it is in front of it. I love Wes Anderson. But, like, he's like, I have, I have poured over every detail and I'm going to show it all to you in, in, in pornographic specifics. But the Coen brothers are the same way. Like, I'm not surprised that like Goodman and those people report they went on set and they knew every shot and they knew the cadence of the line and they knew every wardrobe and stuff like that, because that's kind of what the Coen brothers do to this weird Midwestern or even in this case, like, you know, Midwest by way of LA vibe that they have. They just know these people and they know what they look like and they know the kind of words that they say. And that's why it feels so like iconographic and also just real and sometimes uncomfortable. Like it's, it's hard not to just be like, um, you know, when he's shouting at, at Donnie or something like that throughout it, that you're just like, just 
you are so frustrating. Like, even as a movie character that exists in perpetuity, nothing, you know, nothing changes about the performance. She's like, can you just shut the, like, that shut the fuck up that he uses as a weapon against Donnie and anyone else in this movie. Donnie, like, you're out of your element. Yeah, you're out of your element. Uh, I love the thing of, like, I am the walrus. Like, Don, Donnie is a weird surfer, surfer dude who never really knows what's going on. And I like that. Uh, basically, the dude ignores him, played by Steve Buscemi, another part written for him. And uh, Walter, even though he knows Donnie as well as anyone else, every single infraction, every single spacey response, he attacks every time. <laughs> like, it's like, obviously, this guy is who he is. He's, you know, a pacifist. He's gentle. And every time, like, Vladimir Ulovach, Lenin. <laughs> Like it's so it's it's so it's so great. Um, yeah, he's 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 just such a perfect character. I think this is probably yeah John Goodman's best performance. Uh, it is also one of those weird characters that by the end when Donnie is dying in his arms, and he's like he tells uh, he tells Jeff to go or he tells the dude to go get a medic. Yeah. All of a sudden, all the Vietnam stuff starts to feel very tragic. Like. You don't want Walter to die, sorry, Walter to have another dead man in his arms, right? Like, all of a sudden, the ending, it becomes very tragic. You feel bad for Donnie, that Donnie was basically, like, being disrespected until almost the end. And then you feel bad for Walter because you realize Walter actually loved Donnie in his fucked up way. (laughs) They're just a a weird fucked up little little family. Well, and and also that scene, too, where... You know, he, he does the prayer and then, um, you know, dumps the ashes and it gets on him. And Jeff Bridges is like, you fucked it up. You fucked it up. And like that kind of like empathetic, sad puppy, like, come on, man, let's just go bowling. Like John Goodman's so good at at uh, making you feel like still like like he's he, he's so good at generating empathy. Like there's a yeah. reason why, whether it's the Flintstones or like um, – king ralph or like not so good performances that he is it's it's still fun to watch because he is just like a sweetie machine and even when he's playing this crass abusive angry person like he's able to still go and you go oh that you know that poor little guy uh has a has a hurt heart somewhere there and he also that's is so why good he's, at, like, that's why he's john goodman it's it's, it's why yeah things are very few yeah he, it, it, it crosses a level of pathetic or pitiful into something really human and heartbreaking in the end. Um, and this is why, while he has the blood of a man's ear on his chin, yeah, um, and he's doing another reference to Vietnam, it's breaking your heart. Like, yeah, it's a, it's just, it's just one of the greatest performances. I also think to jump back to the Judaism thing, yeah. I also think that the Cohen brothers, who are amazing little stinkers they're some of the best little stinkers in in hollywood um i think they just love the idea they just love the concept of making this massive goyim this massive guy that they they love working with who is so obviously not a jewish person like ethnically or what what have you um make him this loud, brash, overly proud person who's using Judaism as like a, a yes, exactly as a cudgel, yeah. as a as a weapon to like defend his personality and like defend his ground. 
like this philosophical ar- argument like i think they just love the idea of yeah. this this you stop being jewish like just because yes. you get divorced all the you don't look after your dog you stop being jewish he also like it's uh, just so much funnier coming from the cohen's because they're obviously not making fun of jewish people what they're making yeah. fun of is the idea of someone co-opting a massive a massive John Goodman co-opting Judaism is, is objectively funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as a way to... Um, Win know, an argument? Well, yeah. And a faith that is kind of known as, as not being an aggressor. He use, But he's an aggressive person, so he uses it in an aggressive way. In a way that's kind of antithetical to both the history and the faith of, of Judaism. Yes. Um, I... I, but I also think, like, one of the, you know, to get back to the kind of brilliance of the Coen brothers, I love the little bit in the early th- in the early moment. So, you know, the plot kicks off with um, with some guys breaking into the dude's apartment, asking for his money. He's like, do I look like I have money? And there's another Jeffrey Lebowski, which they've got confused. And in an act of frustration, they pee on, pee on his rug. And as the, he's retelling the story... And again, this is the, the 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 word used in the movie. He's retelling it as a, a Chinaman peed on my rug. And it's Walter who's like, hey, like that is not the preferred nomenclature. It's it's Asian American. Like the Walter, the fact that like the guy whose entire personality is I was in Vietnam. <laughs> I was in Vietnam. Like and it's such a like a, a like, hey, before we continue this, I'm gonna pause the story and like in a very sensitive, nice way. Like, I'm not going to get – it's, like, the only time where he doesn't get aggressive, he is, like, hey, just to let you know, like, that is not the preferred nomenclature anymore, dude. Like, it is it, – it's Asian-American, please. Do you like, think this is something that his ex-wife beat into him because he kept saying uh, Asian slurs uh, around the house? And I mean, may, maybe – or maybe it's just, like, I, like, I why love is the he, idea – Why is he so why – is why is he using I just like that he, he's a – I, th- I like it that he just contains multitudes. Like, he's an incredibly racist, co-opting person in other areas. And, like, but he also, like, I also think it's funny, and this may be a Coen Brothers, aren't I, a stinker. The person who's, like, obsessed with Vietnam but is not racist against – because those things sometimes exist side by side. Like, you know, these, you know, derogatory term got killed our boys. And he is extremely sensitive about Asian Americans, more so than even someone who is the pacifist protester of the war while still is obsessed with the concept of Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> And stuff like that. So I I don't know. Like, I don't know the specific reason for it. It's so specific and so early in the movie that I just, like, I love it as a detail about even a Walter is tough to pin down. Yeah. And, like, he is is a weirdly complex character. And, like, yeah, his sensitivity for the dog. And the weird moments where Jeff is yelling and he's quiet is, like, it's just really telling of their dysfunctional marriage. Um, Really quickly while we're here. Calmer than you. I don't know if you, calmer than you, dude. Calmer than you, um, like a twelve-year-old. Um, I <laughs> always has said the last word. Did you know that they basically didn't act, like oh, basically zero percent of this movie was improv? Yeah, I knew. Yeah, that I mean, that's, that's typical. That's typical of Coen Brothers movies. But like, Jeff Bridges was it. like, I didn't even throw in a fuck or a man. I read yeah. the script as a, you know. I mean, like I script. said, they're very particular. They are like, I I've read that they like. They want you to say the line the exact way with the exact way that they've they've put it because like they have a very specific 
sense of who all these people are in their movies. Yeah. And why they make such writers, great movies. Yeah. And when there's two writers on set and one of them is director, you know, it's a lot, lot easier. That's um, when there was one set of footprints. <laughs> um, another, just the thing of Walter is like, I made a joke about January 6th. The thing about Walter that I just think of is like, he, the guy who thinks that he is a tactical operator. He thinks he's like, he thinks he's the, the, the tough guy. He thinks that like, he has figured out all this shit and it's all in his head. It's worked out perfectly. Um, you know, you could say Walter would later become a prepper or something. Um, I think he's a little bit more complex than that. He absolutely, even if he wasn't in January 6th, he absolutely became one of those dudes that would go on Reddit and yeah. criticize people's like um, choice of open carry handguns and stuff. Yeah. Like, tactical redditor is is yeah. where i think walter oh up yeah at a minimum internet commenter and like won't let something go gets banned from groups and and insists that he was right is yes uh, it's definitely love, his is the millennial version of, of walter yeah yeah and i love i love the moment when he thinks they're they're confronting jeff lebowski and they think and, he, and, and, and i bet this dude could walk i've seen a lot of fucking spinals in my life man yeah. I, this dude can walk um <laughs> calling him out and that and 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 the dude is like no 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 we're calling him out for embezzling yeah it's not that everything is a sham yeah. but um just to like that moment when he's like this dude can walk and he walks up and starts picking him up and he's like flaring his nostrils yeah. and he picks him up yeah. and he starts waggling around and then he finally just drops him and then he shows that weird moment of remorse no. Danny McBride as an actor does not exist without that moment. I think. Oh yeah, like I yeah, love Danny that, McBride. No, no, I do too. But, but he, but like John Goodman, I think created God, that's this such archetype. A, that is a that is a <laughs> great call out because yeah, you can basically say that all of Danny McBride's entire life and performances is is this. It's so great they're working together on the Righteous Gemstones because oh what my a God, perfect it's amazing for those and, two. And, and so really quickly, there's something I was saying earlier that like. I think this movie is about, like, hilarious con- uh, contrasts, right? Like, Jeff and Walter. Yeah. Another hilarious con- contrast is Jeff, Jeff, Lebe- sorry, the dude and Walter. Yeah. Uh, and Jeff and Jeff. And Jeff, um, the two Jeffs and their hilarious sort of, you know, uh, some of it is obvious, right? Like, yeah. an entrepreneur and a, like, a slacker, uh, you know, baby boomer protest. The bomb's guy. lost! Yeah, it's cap. Bombs it's lost. Ca- it's capitalism versus. I mean, it's you know, this is a. There's a lot of good articles about like it's a rejection of capitalism while still recognizing that you can have an aesthetic desire for like a, a detest a detesting capitalism is not the same as saying like I don't need to own anything ever. Like he he doesn't want the rug because it represents material possessions. He wants the rug because it makes his home into a peaceful place. And it, like, yeah. it's okay to have an aesthetic and still be anti-capitalist. And I, I love that little like part of this movie. That's important. Like he doesn't want all the money and yes, people keep offering him money, but you can tell like, he doesn't care. Like he thinks, uh, he thinks 10% of $500,000 is $5,000. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, a, he's like, great. So give me my $5,000. And he's never going to people and demanding money he's owed. He is like, if you're going to give me money, great. Like I could buy more white Russians and half and half and, and everything else. That scene is so great though, because it also just, when he goes to confront the Lebowski and he says like, Hey, like tit for tat, you, your life created an action 
that ruined my rug. You're a rich dude. I would just like a rug. I'm not asking. I'm not trying to sue you. I'm not looking for modern restitution. I'm not even here to judge the situation that caused. I just want karmic to balance. Break. I just want karmic balance. And I love that the second he starts going into a lecture that probably would have lasted 20 minutes and lastly leaves in the room, there's this moment where, because he's screaming at him, is like, you just want, like, and again, rich capitalist, he is indirectly responsible for something bad that happened. He's getting confronted about something that, and he, and this person is acting like, I control the universe now? I'm the, you know, I cause all the problems in your life. It's like, no, I am sp- like, it's that thing of like, uh, immediately going into, Oh, everything that's ever bad. This happened to is my fault. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm talking about one very specific thing tied to you. And that immediately like, uh, disillusioning of blame. So it's like, you're not even talking about the same thing anymore. You can't, you can't stick to the point. I love that. He recognizes that's happening. He just puts his sunglasses on, does this nod, and gets up and walks out without even saying goodbye, and just walks right up to Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, who's so great in this movie, as Brandt, as assistant, and is just like, yeah, he said I could take uh, any rug in the place. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, and Bran, because he's like, well, no one would ever cross, like, he, he doesn't even think that that might, is out of character. He's just like, well, if he who said it... in the wisdom? Who would... If that's what... You know, Lebowski said, why would I question that? And why would this person like it's such a perfect like the amount of people in your life who are giving you a lecture like that, that you've wanted to just put sunglasses on and walk away from and be like, yeah, whatever. OK, I'm not going to get anything from him. I am wasting a limited life that I have in spending any more time on this dead end. Uh, I love that moment. Such yeah. a great moment. It's a great moment. And to kind of take that moment and then jump to, while we're talking about the the big Lebowski, take that moment and jump to the moment I was talking about where they try and make him walk, and he yeah. obviously can't. Um, I feel like I want to talk about the dude a little bit in, in this contrast, because, like, um, you know, the dude is constantly trying to establish this, like, cosmic balance, right? Like, he's in his own life. He's constantly returning to his house to smoke a J. He's going back to the, the bowling alley. Like he's he's not trying to create chaos in his life at all. He's trying to create a sense of centeredness and stability where he isn't fucked with anybody and no one fucks with him. And like, okay, there's obviously some level of uh affectation that became behavior at some point, right? Yeah. Like the sort of like there's not <laughs> There's not a reason why every every there were a million hippies that had this particular, you know, yeah. flair or this particular aesthetic other than like, you know, there was a sort of there's a sort of aesthetic chill in the air. Right. There's an aesthetic that you were talking about, like the rug, like, yeah, um, it's obviously all real. But like at this point, the thing that I think people like about the dude is that. Other than, you know, he smokes a lot of tie sticks and occupies a lot of administration buildings. And he did uh, introduce myself and probably many people to how good white Russians are. Yeah. <laughs> well, what? how good white Russian is. Two white Russians yeah. is a diarrhea <laughs> situation. It's true. Um, that also yeah. teaches you that you can't, you shouldn't drink white Russians all night. No, anymore. you have, <laughs> you, you have, you have one in the afternoon when you have a convenient bathroom located. Yeah. Um, it's also a good hair of the dog drink because it coats your stomach really well. Yeah, it's true. Um, nice and thick. Uh, they should make a white Russian with Pepto-Bismol called a pink Russian. Yeah, that's um, really good. 
But um, the dude, the dude is actually like a fairly real dude. He's legitimate. Yeah, he is. He 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 calls it like he sees it. He doesn't lie to people really. He's just kind of a straight shooter. He occasionally puts on like a little bit of flair, but he's mostly. If you ask him a question, you're going to get a pretty straightforward answer unless he thinks he's going to get his ass kicked. Um, he's he's more or less a, a, the genuine article, more or less. Yeah. Jeff Lebowski, however, is nothing yeah, but... Great f- call-out, yeah. The only thing that's real about Jeff Lebowski is his particular disability. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the fun, funny part of the ending. It's not funny to see a man in a wheelchair get dumped out of it, but the fact that like he's so full of shit that even Walter doesn't believe that he's in a wheelchair is kind of indicative of this, this entire thing. He... Um, all of his money came from his dad ex-wife. He's living on a trust fund that he has an extended trust fund to his trophy wife. So his fake wife, um, his adopted entrepreneur personality, where he has this entire wall of pictures with heads of state or whatever. And he has this, he has this, um, the, the little Lebowski's urban achievers. Like I'll tell you what I am. I am. I'm usually hesitant to buy this popular of like, uh, kid re- or kid related pop culture stuff, but I saw a onesie that said for like a baby that said uh, uh, Little Lebowski or Richard Cheever. I was very <laughs> close to getting it for one of my children. That's like, pretty funny. That is a funny, yeah. Onesie. And and um, I do love the joke where Jeff is like, "Wow, he's pretty open minded towards you know race stuff. He's got a lot of kids." <laughs> and Brant nervously is like, <laughs> "They're not his actual kids." <laughs> that, that whole scene. Like, this also, like, was a, you know, when you're 16 and you're watching this, this also was, like, a connection to so many other cool actors, like, you know, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman and and Julianne Moore, like, those are stuff I was seeing in, like, Happiness and Paul Thomas Anderson movies, and it, like, it felt really plugged into, like, the late 90s, early 2000s independent cinema actors, where, like, you knew about these people before they became... It felt like major pop culture stars, and this this cast is littered with like future household names. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but re- really briefly, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie is Brandt is a adopted fake son for Jeff Lebowski. Yeah, He's completely artificial. He has this weird, like wormy Smithers personality. Well, well dude, that's, <laughs> that's no one acts that way. No. But he's. He's the one child that he's been able to keep close to him. Like yep. Maud hates hates him. It's the yep. one child he's been able to keep close to. Him. It's a fake kid. It's it, it's a it's an assistant that he's who kind of looks like it. Like dresses like him. Yeah, like it, it is just a little bit like the glasses. It it does feel like Brand is very much trying to like, well, dude, we just yes. don't know. Like and trying to position though. It, it's a great little performance. Some of the funniest lines are Philip Seymour Hoffman's in a movie of very big performances and very funny lines. oh so you didn't go to college and he's like yeah i went to college but smoked yeah. a lot Occupi- of occupied a few a lot of administration buildings, buildings yeah. bowled a lot yeah. to be honest brant i don't really remember much <laughs> God. and brant is horrified at everything that, that the dude does basically yeah. wall to wall unless he's unless big lebowski is threatening him and yeah. then he's like I'm sorry, dude. We have to kind of be a little rough with you. But that's... Okay, yeah. Sorry, dude. This 
This, and the, we the, had the, not considered that, dude. Yes, I love that he immediately like is like, dude. "Oh, your name is Dude. <laughs> I respect that, and we'll call you Dude with so much sincerity. It's it's, it's yes. fantastic. He's he's incredible. I really miss him. But yeah, yeah, basically, like Jeff Lebowski is just full of shit, and he's and that's sort of the class angle in this movie. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, there's there's kind of a yes, like you were saying, like there's a, there's a moment where people are just like, "But you're just really leaning in on not doing anything. Like you don't get yeah. bored." I I understand, like, nobody should have to actually work 40 hours a week. I understand this, like, kind of stupid. And nobody should definitely have to work more than 40 hours a week. Get a job, sir! But, but, like, (laughs) you don't want to do anything? Like, five hours a week. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing. Okay, got it. Um, But there is, like, a class angle here where, like, Jeff is, like, a professional, like, floater. Like, a or sorry, the dude is a professional floater. Jeff, Jeffrey Lebowski is truly, like business class piece of shit true layabout like i bet you he pays barely any taxes he hasn't worked a real job his entire life probably and yet his entire job now is um stealing money from uh the little lebowski urban achievers and yelling at people that he thinks are beneath him like it's so it's such like a funny fire and ice thing because like once you realize that once you realize that Jeffrey Lebowski doesn't deserve his money either, you're like, yeah. oh, what the fuck is this guy's problem? Well, and again, no one ever earns that much money to yes. begin with, but he more than ever is, like, coasting off either his parents or his wife's money, and, like, he, it's it's all, yeah, it's all facade. Like, he he loves being seen as better than everyone else. Yes. And having Rich, and it's like, we let him use the house. Like, he's, yeah, he's just... It, it, with with the exception of the kindness of like his daughter and his ex wife and his parents having money, he would be another. He would be a Jeff Lebowski. Like the line, you're right. You're 100 percent right to call it the the line separating the two Lebowskis is just like essentially luck of the universe, like yeah. cosmic die roll. And in that way, it relates to the theme of the movie, which is nothing really has any meaning. Stuff just happens. Like the fact that one Jeff Lebowski is, has the perception of a influential rich person. And the other one is, um, is, a, is considered by society as a lazy bum who doesn't contribute or do anything. It's just like an accident of a dice roll where one ended up in this situation and one ended up in another situation. Um, but like ultimately they contribute about the same to society. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that like one doesn't want to bother anyone and one of them is actively stealing from <laughs> <laughs> from children. Actively stealing from underprivileged kids. Yeah. Um, uh, I like there's no c- come up it's really besides Walter throwing him out of the wheelchair like he, Yeah. He has to He's like okay. you have your story, I have mine. <laughs> yes. Um and I, I, while we're here like the 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 fact that the dude doesn't want to be known as Jeff Lebowski and he gives him like a whole list of names I would prefer to be called is very much it speaks to like this this Buddhist like denial of ego. Like he's not using names as like a I'm going to build a name for myself and people are going to know the Lebowski name. And he's not like excited that there's somebody I mean, that yeah. shares his last name. It's a denial of self. He's like, I'm not a person. I'm just the dude. I'm just a yeah. guy. I exist. Whereas, whereas the other Jeffrey Lebowski literally has a mere to times person of the year with his name on it. Yes. Like he wants to put his name in lights. Yes. Yes. And I, yeah, you're right. The whole, the whole, like, uh, like, just jumping to the end of the movie. 
Uh, Bunny comes home. She was never abducted. Bunny was having a great fucking time she, partying yeah. in Palm Springs. Doing she drugs. owes money to her former... Per- like, she's actually only been in L.A. for a year. She's from Moorhead, Minnesota. In that time, she shot some low-budget porno movies for a guy named Jackie Treehorn, who he, he she owes money to for, you know, shitty porno tax stuff. Um, I, who knows? Um and then married Jeff Lebowski, Jeffrey Lebowski, in like a six month period. But yeah, she was just on a joyride to Vegas. Yeah, that was it. yeah, yeah. She was in, yeah, she was in Palm Springs, and she like basically, yeah, she was just partying. And she has no idea any of this shit is happening. Maybe she told the Ger- maybe she told the Germans, the nihilists, that she was going out of town or something. The well, you have is- to assume that because I mean, Carl Hungus is his, her friend, so yeah. you have to assume. And he's hanging out at the Lebowski house in the pool. So you have to assume that at the very least he knows that she's gone. So he's... He made the connection and that's how he knew she wasn't yeah. going to be around for a while. Um, yeah. And um, their, their their idea, I think, was to get the money and, and get out before, you know, anything. Um, the plot doesn't matter so much that there's not even a woman in danger. Like, no. Bunny was partying there's her ass tone. off in, in, yeah. out in the desert and then she comes home with ten toes and ten fingers, and then she yeah. crashes into the fountain unscathed and is partying and stripping off her clothes and running around this. The mansion. only toe that Back was lost home, was voluntary. There's, no, there's yes, Amy Mann chopped off her toe voluntarily <laughs> to, uh, to impress Flea. She, maybe her, his girlfriend chopped off her toe. <laughs> it's not fair. I don't care. <laughs> like I love fair. I thought you yeah. were nihilists. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. All the stuff with the nihilist and like Walter still assuming they're Nazis and like the, like I mean it's it's a it's a common line for a reason. But that like oh my god, nihilist. You know, say what you will about the tenets of national socialism, but at least it's an ethos. <laughs> like so just like the that idea of people because he cares about everything too much even when he shouldn't care about it as much as he should so i love that the opposite of walter is nihilists and the only thing that strikes a little bit of fear into yeah and he can even understand pacifists because he has found a friend in in the dude and he's found a friend in like these hippie guys who are like um conscientious objectors or just you know burn their draft card and never never got called out on it or whatever They they have sensitive emotional issues oh I did not know that. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, like I love how he's like, okay, well, I will make use of that information. Like he's not a total monster. He understands that emotional issues and trauma does exist. Yeah. But like, but like, he's like a child. Like you do need to explain it to him outside of the moment where he's throwing his tantrum, and then he'll be like, okay, I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. I I just love. I, I I love the strange the strange contrast the comic contrast that they draw in this movie like j- basically everything makes me laugh in this movie. Yeah. I love the moments where Walter is is sensitive and soft and weird. Yeah. There's one moment that we didn't talk about earlier when he meets uh, Arthur Digby Sellers who wrote 156 <laughs> episodes of a fake show called Brandon. Yeah, so um, he so they do a a money exchange and Walter is he's no slug. He does he does a fake fake money exchange because he's convinced that cuz um in one of his like pot filled rants like the dude's like she probably kidnapped herself I'm not really all that worried about what's going on here but uh, sure if I can make a little money I guess I'll do it it's an easy way to earn 
ten thousand dollars. He, he's also just kind of impressed with us. They gave the dude a beeper, <laughs> like just you know, just a little bit of a, a fascinated like stoner that they ha- he has a piece of technology that they're giving him. Um, but Walter becomes so convinced with that offhand comment that he he you know he's like, let's keep the money and and do that. So the 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 drop off goes horribly wrong because Walter is not a strategist; he's a buffoon. But then later their car gets the the car with what they think is the real million dollars gets gets stolen when it find when he finally gets recovered and they have the in that very funny scene of like you know when he's talking to the cops of like do you get recover on these sometimes wouldn't hold up much hope for the tape deck though or the credence <laughs> like it's such a great uh great line but they yeah he they find that a task from Larry Sellers and this is your uh this is your cracked article your cracked article so we talked about in the mist episode i've got a pretty good fan theory that um the reason the fog lifted was because they they've completed the sacrifice yeah um my new uh fan theory that i'm not going to stop sh- i'm not going to shut the fuck up about is that at the beginning of the movie they find the wrong jeff Wolbowski. <laughs> Uh, my my theory is that in this movie they found the wrong Larry Sellers, and that there's a different Larry Sellers somewhere. Because uh, there's no indication that this kid has the briefcase. Like yeah. the briefcase is gone for the rest of the movie. Well, also, we find out later the briefcase is full of phone books. Phone so books. Why would yes. anyone care? Yeah, so it doesn't really matter because the briefcase wasn't, you know, the kid finds the briefcase, he breaks it open, it's full of phone books. It's just like more shit for him to throw out the window of the car, right? Yeah. Um, that's my, and the kid says absolutely nothing, the entire exchange. I, I, I found a picture online of what the what the, the thing looks like, and the only real identifying detail is the, like, what grade he's in. And what grade he's in and, and the teacher. Although, yeah. again, I think even in the ni- 19, I mean, 1991 doesn't have the internet, so how is he tracking down any of this, I think? Is he, and also, they, they can't just, do you think John Goodman can just call a school and be like, does, does, does your kid go, is there this teacher? I mean, that's what he would have to do, and there's a lot of schools in LA. And also, of course, the person that he found just happens to have a connection to someone that Walter is like very fascinated with. This guy who's in an iron lung in a very Cohen Brothers detail. I remember reading something like in 1991, there's like 18 people in the world that were in an iron lung, and it's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. They decided this guy who was the dad of this kid that may have stole the car, who not only wrote 150 episodes of a TV show when they Brandon. show up, he's in, he's in he's he's in an iron lung. Like, I, I love I also love the way he asks like a kid like is he doing okay and so <laughs> I'm goes, not <laughs> she goes, he has health problems <laughs> oh no Larry Senior has health problems like, he's in their living room That's my, I guess every time I watch the movie there's a new funniest line for me um, and oh no he has health problems <laughs> I know well, just the idea of walking in, he's so excited to meet him, and he, this guy is in the living room in an iron lung, and he's like, is he, is he alright? Like, no. He's unconscious and in an iron lung. Um, <laughs> oh, 
Christ. Yeah, such such. And a, then they have the movie. famous the famous scene outside the house, yeah. which uh, became more famous online once they had to do a TV edit of this movie. I don't remember exactly what this movie. I don't know if it, it, it for a period of time it was occupying like most fucks per minute or most fucks. It was up there with like Casino. Yeah, yeah, it was at, at least the top five at some point, yeah. and I think Scorsese pushed it out twice. Um, yeah, I think Departed. Wolf, and, Wolf, and Wolf of Wall Street has the current record. I mean, like by twice. Yeah. anything else it's something like 600 fucks compared to like 300 or 200 in movies like this but yeah and then uh so walter goes outside to smash a car that he thinks larry sellers bought with the money yeah um and then and he's going you see this larry see what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass and he goes louder and louder until he's until he is literally at the bottom of his lungs yelling do you fuck a stranger in the ass he's spitting and i was just i i like at first i was like not laughing that much because i've seen this bit a million times but there's something about john goodman just being at the end of his lungs like looking like he's exerting every amount of pressure to make this kid this kid feel bad. And this kid, not only is this not his car, <laughs> he just <laughs> stares out the window. I, I love, too, that the way John Goodman's cadence changes immediately upon the guy going, hey, what the fuck are you doing? This is my car. He's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, it's, it's I'll, I'll fuck up your car then. And then the cut to them being in the In-N-Out Burger with, like, wind blowing through their hair because he's lost all the windows to their car eating the burger is like just such a perfect it's incredible it's such a good cut one of my favorite little details of this movie is there's only one time that the dude actually he keeps getting hired as like what you know he meets maude lebowski and she's like i'll give you a 10 percent finders fee because that money wasn't yours so you get the money back that you gave and we'll give you a 10% finder's fee. And Jackie Treehorn's like, actually half that money Bunny owes me. So if you get half the money, I'll give you a 10% finder's fee. Like, you know, he, people keep literally dragging him or knocking him unconscious. And like, you know, he's existing in both a, a metaphorical haze from all the drugs and a literal haze from being knocked unconscious and all these wonderful fantasy sequences, which we can talk about in a second. There's only one part in the movie that he ever really tries to do his job. He does a lot of boundless speculation about what's going on. Um, but there's a part where Jackie, like in all of these Philip Marlowe type type movies, you know, the thing is he, you know, the, the character sits down and has a drink and then does something clever once the person leads or like gets a clue to the next thing. There's only one time in this entire movie that the dude ever attempts to do any of the investigating that he's been hired to do. And it's when Jackie Treehorn takes a call in the middle of their conversation, writes something down on a notepad and like then tears off the piece of paper and suspiciously walks out of the room. And he jumps into action, recognizing like this is probably an obvious clue. And he takes a pencil and he shades it so he can see the outline. And it's just a drawing of a guy with a dick that's the size (laughs) of half of his body. And it's like, it's such a great Coen Brothers joke because at no point in this movie had he ever tried to find clues, look into what these people are saying, do any sort of detecting, and then he finally does, and it's just a guy who drew a picture of a big dick. It's it's, it's there's it's wonderful. It's in, it's incredible. There's there's I found I wrote, I wanted to write these down too. There's two other moments I found that where he tries to do cool Philip Marlowe shit and it backfires. So uh, the other one is when he. Um, he's like, people keep just breaking into my house. So he tries to set up a, oh, yeah. 
with a piece of wood and a chair, oh and God, the chair so focused on the door. And then the guys from Jackie Treehorn just, like, open the door, and they're like, Jackie wants to see you. He wants to see the loser Lebowski. It's so fun. It's also funny because they don't kick his ass. They're just like, let's go. <laughs> like, well, it's so funny because he forgot which way his door opened. His door. Is, and he, he puts like 80 in. nails into his floor, <laughs> into that board to stop it. And then they immediately open it. And then what's great is later he trips over it and knocks himself out walking into his house, yes. forgetting it was there later. In the There's another funny joke in there featuring Walter that's a great button. Um, where he's on the phone with Walter, which actually distracts you from the fact that you're like, doesn't that door open out? Like, it kind of distracts you from that fact that Walter is going, he's on the phone with Walter. You can't hear what Walter's saying. Yeah. And he goes, no, Walter, I don't think he was about to crack. (laughs) (laughs) That whole phone call of like, no, I just need some time away. No, like... Yeah, I, I don't know how much time. Like, he's just, like, after that experience, Walter immediately is calling him to talk about the case. Uh, and again, the one time that Jeff is like, we got it, we solved the case. He's like, how does this constitute an emergence? Yes. Show me, Shamas! <laughs> and then immediately Jeff's like, yeah, I'll be at practice. Oh, and the other moment where he's trying to do spy shit, he notices he's being tailed and he tries to turn down oh. a side, uh, uh, you know, oh my a side God. tree. Did- and he drops the joint in his lap and starts screaming and then hits a, hits a dumpster. I, the, the way he hits that dumpster, which is like the car almost turning completely 270 degrees to smash at top speed into that dumpster head on is, a, is amazing. It gets me every time. It was one of the moments, even the first time I watched this movie, that I walked away going, I don't know how much I like that. That was so funny. And also, as, as someone who, I mean has smoked both joints and cigarettes in cars. Uh, If you've ever dropped a cherry while you're driving or anything, it's a very scary moment for a second because you're like, oh my God, I'm going to set my car on fire and I smell smoke and I don't know where it's coming from. I think that's why I stopped smoking anything while I was driving was because one time it went in the backseat and burned a hole in something and I had to figure out how to patch it up. It was was awful. Um, yeah. And then there's a couple other moments that just kind of act in contrast to the whole, you know, spy persona or PI persona thing, like the cop confrontation where he's talking to the cops and he's just completely in a, he has no fucking idea how to. Yeah, he, he literally was drugged and walking down the middle of the street in Malibu and, and they they pick him up and they're like, is this your only a form of identification? It's a Savers, the grocery it's a, it's store. A, it's a Ralph's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, great value yeah. card. Yeah. Um, which, unfortunately, because of the passage of time, mine is now a phone number. Yeah. Man, technolo- my Ralph's card is yeah. not. They didn't give me card a card anymore. anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, the cop confrontation, like in a, in a good, you know, like uh, corrupt L.A. story. This would be like a whole thing where he like he has some back and forth. Instead, he's completely out of his fucking mind. So he's just like kind of it's like Jackie Treehorn treats objects like women. And he just throws the beer bottle at his head like no attempt. And then oh, yeah, it's a coffee mug. He just, yeah. Oh, coffee he throws, it, he throws it and the cup doesn't arc. It just goes straight, <laughs> just goes straight at his head. Flat side to the, the flat ground, side yeah. of his head. Yeah. Get and, the fuck out of Malibu. And that's it for the cops. Like you see the cops twice in this movie. One is or three times. One when he reports the car stolen. Once when they return it both the times. They're just kind of like, sure. Like this they're is losers. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Um, and Maud seducing him to um, get his seed specifically because she's like, oh, 
I want someone who I will have no social interaction with and has no interest in raising a child. So I selected you. I, I know. And he's like, oh, okay. Far out. <laughs> like, far up. It's so yeah. funny. And, and th- But those are both like riffs also on P.I. stuff where it's like women that can't help but throw themselves at P.I.s. I mean, it became a James Bond thing later. But like, you know, um, it's it's very telling. And just like two funny points about this. One. I think this movie is actually very good at unraveling a mystery. This is not yeah. one of those, it's not one of those like parody movies where they're like, we don't like, we don't, you don't care when you're watching Austin Powers that it's not a particularly compelling spy mystery. Like this is, yeah. this is a real movie that happens to also be satiric or whatever. Great. It's a good example of it, the, it, it, of the genre. It is an example of the genre, except that the mystery is meaningless and nothing happened. Like, but there was a mystery that needed to be unraveled. And there was a lot of people that were introducing complexity. At the end of the day, all mysteries are simple. Like, that's the genius of of good mystery storytelling, right? Like, think of, like, Knives Out. If you write out what happened in that movie, it's actually a relatively simple story of what happened any any complex mystery is simple once you know the solution um it just has uh, a bunch of dead ends it has a bunch of dead ends or missed pieces or stuff like that so this is no different from any of those other philip marlowe things it's just at the end it's not a situation like a chinatown where the big mystery is that like incest occurred and this person is both you know, it's her mother and her sister, whatever, you know, whatever else. Though Maude um, and Jeff Lebowski are both Lebowskis. I mean, how how much does that name go, <laughs> go around? <laughs> um, but like, but the mystery is that, oh, she, she was gone for a week and didn't tell anyone. And then a bunch of other people added unnecessary complexity to that story mm-hmm. and then once it's revealed the difference is that once the mysteries are revealed in the big sleep or you know or whatever or the long goodbye it's like oh shit that's what was going on this whole time and this one just feels different because it's like oh nothing was going on and then the ending scene is them at the bowling alley competing in the semi-finals like the, the way it just kind of goes into like yeah that was a tale like that was a story and and you have um Sam Elliott kind of going through and saying like, yeah, there's, you know, here's all the other things that are going to happen in the future. Like hope they get through the semis. I didn't like seeing Donnie die. Um, I, I know like there's a little Donnie die. Like, oh, that was where I knew the movie was fucking with me where I was like, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I, I know there's a little Lebowski on the way, blah, blah, blah. And it does a couple very genius things that kind of support this idea of like, you you're seeing these people in a moment of time and like what happens next or even what happened in the movie doesn't really have any meaning one you have sam elliott like basically not be able to come up with an effective moral and just says he just likes that the guy exists which is a very funny like moral that they learn because we didn't we knew that at the beginning of the movie too the other two things it does it's very funny is it does it literally doesn't tie off anything in the movie like like what happens to Maude? What happens to Jeff Lebowski? What happens to Bunny? What, what happens, happens to little, the Nihilist? Little Lebowski Urban Achievers? What happens to any of it? They never like does does they never get into it, which is which is good. They never they don't even show the semis. So you don't even know what happens in the fucking bowling tournament that's been important throughout it. And in a tiny touch that I think echoes that, the last frame of the movie and it stays on it for a while or like it lets it sort of finish is you see someone bowl and the ball hits the pins and you can imply in your mind that what happened is a strike because it hit fast and 
and pins are scattering, but it never lets the frame actually finish. Like, it literally leaves every kind of moment unfinished at the end of the movie, and I, I love that touch. And that has to be intentional, because they let a guy just finish a bowling, and then they cut so suddenly right before you see all for sure that all the pins are down and, and whether they've landed, and and before you see the thing indicate strike. It's like a perfect little, like, mini visual touch to mm-hmm. note that, like, you're not going to see the whole thing. I, I think that that's, that's absolutely true. That's a visual trick. Yeah. I think that the death of Donnie and following the death of Donnie as the ending, as opposed to following um, any of the plot machinations closing yeah. up, I think that that is, in my sense, the Mike Yamagita scene of this movie. So in, in Fargo, there's a scene that a lot of people complain about, people that don't understand the movie complain yeah. about, where main character but Francis McDormand's character she agrees to meet an old friend at uh Radisson um and uh oh it's they, nice it's nice um they they agree to to meet and she eventually she she kind of understand like through that scene that has nothing to do with the main plot her character understands and views the world in a different way her character starts to see that there's a banality to there's a banality there's a there's a there's not a criminal masterminds necessarily there's just desperate and dumb guys who do stupid shit for a little bit of money or a little bit of recognition or a little bit of clout and that scene unlocks the whole movie and if you're not like quite paying attention like that scene will seem out of place and for me if you're watching this movie and you're like, why does it end with such a sad sort of sullen saying goodbye to Donnie, a character that we purposefully know nothing about? They reveal that he's a surfer during his funeral. During his funeral, because he loves the ocean so much. Uh, he's, but I mean, he, ne- he literally doesn't get a word edgewise in the entire movie. He surfed the beaches from La Jolla to Malibu, up to Pismo. It's a beautiful, it's actually like a beautiful eulogy until he gets, in, gets into the Vietnam stuff, but it's just a great performance. It's a great way to cap off In your character. wisdom, you took them, Lord. Like, you took so many of our young men before their time. Just that resist. anger, yeah. But In uh, your wisdom? It, that scene for me is is the um, the movie's uh, key. That scene, that scene unlocks the rest of the movie because the movie is fundamentally not about We've talked a lot about how it's not about the plot. And, like, I've also talked about how a lot of movies, like, a lot of these mysteries, like The Big Sleep, are really hard to follow. And very often, it's not that the characters are genius detectives. They're kind of stumble-fucking their way through the story, even if you remember them being like, oh my god, how'd they know to go there? And it's like, well, they went to that bar because they're an alcoholic. Um, This movie is not about plot. This movie is not about that it's specifically about character, and it's about what happens to the dude and how the dude's sense of the dude's sense of stability um in in the universe the there's a lot of i think almost every coen brothers movie could probably fairly patly but um still accurately be described as people contending with the fundamentally chaotic nature of the universe That's obviously the theme of No Country for Old Men. That's obviously the theme of Burn After Reading. And then the, like, clearly the, like, the the fucking uh, All the President's Men line, right? Like, yeah. the truth is, these were not bright men, and things got out of hand. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. The, 
that this is not those are like the two pillars of all coen brothers movies exactly this is this is a great source of comedy for them the like the people trying to find stability in a fundamentally chaotic universe that's bigger than them um like you know this is like there's cosmic horror this is like cosmic comedy right um it's it's the dude is 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 we're watching this movie through the eyes of a guy who desires comfort and stability like comfort and stability he has to be literally ripped out of his living room three or four times into action um there's only once he leaves the house on his own accord to chase the mystery and that's when he fucking figures it out and that's at, that's at the end of the movie basically it's relatable it's also very funny right like a lot of us are just like man i just you have weeks where you're an ambitious go-getter where you're like, I need to make my life better. And then you have weeks where you're like, yeah. man, I just really don't want anybody to fuck with me. I really just want to get through what, I, what I'm getting through. And the entire, there is no reason that he is in this movie. He's not, he's outclassed in almost every aspect. Yeah. He, the only thing that brought this in there is that him and another guy in LA County happen to have matching names. Just, yeah. A fundamentally chaotic universe. Yeah, there's he doesn't. This guy isn't his cousin. This guy isn't like a le- long lost relative. Like the the fact that there, it's not a it, it's a joke, obviously, but it's not a yeah. coincidence that they yeah. the only way they characterize the Germans is as nihilists. Um, it, it's because nihilism is a way to react to a fundamentally chaotic universe. Yeah. Is saying there is no meaning, so let's create our own meaning there. And in a weird way, like, the, the dude is not a nihilist. He's he's nothing, but he's, I think, closer, closely speaking, kind of like a Buddhist. Um, but that is the Coen brothers for me, in a nutshell. People that are unprepared for contending with the chaos of the universe having to face it. There's movies that don't necessarily fit in that, but, like, Burn After Reading is obviously that. I think Fargo is also that with a thin veneer over it. Fargo's like... All that chaos happened because you wanted a little bit of money. Yeah, it, it's 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 not something that a bucket where all every single one of their movies fall into, but it is the overreaching like theme of their overall as a as yeah. a whole, right? Like yeah. even even fucking uh, Macbeth is like a Shakespeare play about that, like yeah. the one that he chose to. To, to kind of do a Shakespeare movie on is kind of, I mean, a lot, of, I guess a lot of Shakespeare movies are about people either contending with the chaos or out of their element and, uh, and trying to assert their, uh, their will on Shakespeare will add some sort of like elements yeah. of fate or witches or, yeah. or you know, yeah. stuff like that to some of those, those stories, but uh, to add a little like dramatic flair, but the Coens are like, that's not the aesthetic they're working in. The aesthetic no. they're working in is um, everyday people making random choices or ending up in random situations and having to sort their way out of it. And well, you know, you but, and that is also place. why that's also why like Francis McDormand is such like a key figure in all of those. Co- like that lecture that Marge gives around like, what did you do it all for? Little bit of money. Like you were saying, like, that could be the ending of 90% of Coen Brothers movies. Like, even this one, like, whether it's whether it was directed to Jeffrey Lebowski or Walter or all these, like, you lost your friend. Oh, for a hope of a little bit of money when you could yeah. have just gone. Like, that. that is p- part of the reason why I, like, again, it's a pat answer in a, in a filmography of so many, like, 
great movies, but like Par- Fargo is the Rosetta Stone for all of their movies in my mind, and it's yeah. because like it's the only one that has the Marge character who is who is accurately identifying like what a waste of time all of this is and how it only like the only thing that you could say that that Walter and and the dude learn is that all of this was a waste of time and they lost their friend Donnie directly because they decided to engage in like trying to be wannabe sleuths and con men and private detectives and stuff like that. And if they just would have stayed bowling, they would have ended up with the same amount of money in the same station of life and they would have had one other friend. And like they don't call that out explicitly, but like that's that is that's like they didn't have everything taken away. Like but Donnie wasn't Jerry. said to have a, a pacemaker put in the next day or something. Like, Donnie could have ma- had a massive coronary out, out of joy that they won the bowling competition or whatever. Maybe, like, but I mean, the circumstances people massive, were very People terrifying. have massive heart attacks for good reasons and bad reasons, True. right? Like, yeah. That, it's uh, going to happen if, you, if you're in that particular position. It's going to happen. It's just... I think you can make a case that this was a very stressful situation. I think you made the case that both of them probably blame themselves for Donnie's death to some regard. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think that's clear. So, yeah. yeah I, but, I, I, but yeah, like, I, Donnie I, dying and us learning more about Donnie, like, it's it's the fundamental chaos of this. Like, no. Donnie truly... It was the only time they got to... It's the only time he was able to speak, right? Yeah. Walter spoke for him. Um, yeah. But he, he had to die for anyone to mention who he was as a person. And they truly didn't let Walter... Well, there's a moment where Walter's holding Donnie back and sort of taking care of him. He's like, just stay out of this. And then Walter, in a a very surprising move, is able to easily dispatch these three guys. I I thought Walter would be all bluster, but he actually is an incredibly violent person. Um, But the the point is, like, Donnie's basically... He's not just an innocent here. He's basically uninvolved. The only time he comes with is he's like... I guess we're going to go near the In-N-Out, so we're getting some In-N-Out. Yeah, that's by the In-N-Out burger, right, dude? Shut yeah. the fuck up. <laughs> it's, 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 it lands emotionally because of all the ways Steve Carell occupies the scene as a performer. He's a great fucking performer. Yeah. Yeah. And he Steve occupies the space. Steve Buscemi. He's just an amazing performer. Every You could watch this movie and watch his face yep. in every scene and just be like, like you're understanding what's happening the fact that like even in this moment like they can't even say goodbye to donnie and like the ash flies back in the dude's face is the, the all of this is 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 the movie communicating to you in the end like what it's all been about the entire time and you know strikes and gutters ups and downs is the thing the dude says in the <laughs> yeah, end at the end yeah we've had some hits we've had some misses it's such a great way to end this yeah some good things happened some bad things happened all kind of evens out in the end. It's the such dude a and funny the cowboy lesson. are kind of the same, same yeah. in the same position where they're both like, yeah, I guess you just kind of have to embrace the fundamental chaos. Actually, they're different. The dude is embracing the fundamental chaos of the universe by saying strikes and gutters. He's saying philosophically, yeah. he's saying that you know we were going to end up here at some point. At some point, this was gonna this was gonna be the thing. Flip side. The cowboy guy's like, well, that was quite a story we heard today. <laughs> like, yeah. he's trying to lay this, like, artificial context on top yeah. of the movie that is specifically denying you yeah. that context. I'm really glad that we covered this one. I, You know, there's a part of me that almost, like, was worried about returning to it just because, you know, this also fits our theme from last month, too, and that I've seen this movie so many times. It has been a while since I've seen this movie because there was a 10-year period where – I counted it among my, you know, 25 favorite movies and was just watching it all the time. And everyone that I knew loved this movie and was we were watching it all the time. And it just, 
you know, not like a lot of the movies that we've talked about this summer. It wasn't one that I didn't return to because I didn't like it or was sick of it or was worried that something it wasn't going to hold up. It was like, man, I know every moment and every line. Like if I'm not introducing it to someone new for the first time, like I could, I could watch the movie by closing my eyes for two hours. And, and I'm so glad we did cover it just because all of that I just said is true. And also I could also put this movie on any time and have a good time because it's such a funny movie with all these because it's so focused on these little character beats that reveal itself like there there was stuff that i got from probably the 50th viewing this time around that i didn't get from from previous watches as well so it's kind of in 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 retrospect it's a little bit of a shame that we waited 350 movies or so to do a coen brothers movie. yeah but oh my god we, i mean we we gotta do a few more soon because this this also is making me just recognize how much i would love to talk about anything from fargo to the hudsucker proxy because i just i love i, I watch so much. i watch like literally like any other movies this is yeah. they are the they're in the unique position of filmmakers that not only do their movies get better with age, but like the last one I saw is probably my favorite one. Um, before this one, the last one I watched was Raising Arizona. Yeah. Probably was my favorite one. I haven't watched Fargo or No Country in a few years. Now I'm going to watch them in the next week just because yeah. like, I need more. Oh, I'm definitely. Fargo is one that I probably watched even more times and, and kept up with over the years. Yeah. But um, oh, I love Fargo. I just, their movies are so comforting in a weird way for me. Like, there's just, I feel like I'm in good hands when I'm watching them. They're so um, specific. And I actually oh, have one Coen Brothers movie I've never seen. So I have not seen Intolerable Cruelty or The Lady Killers. That's it. Uh, I think both of those are secret successes, if not their best movies. I kind of dig Intolerable Cruelty, where they're trying to do a 30s screwball comedy. Like, I kind of get why people were like, this isn't what I want from the Coen brothers, but I like it. And I like, like, I mean, Lady Killers, uh, I I love the original movie, and it's basically doing that. Um, and has some, some of the funniest fucking, like, great little, again, it's, it's nowhere near, it's three and a half, four star territory. Uh, but I but I do enjoy those movies quite a lot. The only one I've never seen is Old Brother We're Out Thou. Oh. I actually saw the first 30 minutes and then like something happened 20 years ago and then I never got back to it. So Yeah, it's incredible. Um, um I just have one final note on the yeah. Coens before we go we go away. I think the Coens are actually like expert filmmakers for our time specifically. Yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, Aaron, but uh there's a lot of very dumb people on YouTube and such. Uh, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm familiar. Get very obsessed with cinema sins and they get obsessed with how did this serve the plot and uh they pick apart movies in a way that they're they think that it's like a engine that they it's a piece of code or an engine that they can optimize by removing pieces and while i'm someone that that prefers shorter movies uh, absolutely i think that there's this sort of sickness in people that they think that they can like imbue a sense of superiority in themselves by imbuing a sense of superiority over film and i think one of the great signs of this is this obsession with how did this serve the plot how did this serve the plot yeah i understand a lot of people are plot first people that's fine but i think the coen brothers are like a a a a, a cure for this era because the coens to me are almost entirely character first filmmakers yeah they prefer to let the characters lead the action. They prefer to let what what needs to happen to the characters to get them to where they need to go happen. Whether or not it's the most efficient path or 
whether or not like, you know, hey, this funny moment, it kind of reestablishes something we already know, but it's funny as fuck. So let's do it. Yeah. Like the they are filmmakers that I very greatly admire for being for letting characters drive story and a <laughs> yeah. story. And, and when the story doesn't matter, just let the characters exist, because ultimately yep. these these movies are supposed to make us feel something. All of all, all of these tools in the toolbox about three act structure and how you write dialogue and establish character, all of that is just it tools in the tools box to make us feel something. And yeah. I feel like they're cure they're a cure for this era because you watch something like Buster Scruggs even. That's not even their best yeah. movie. You watch something like Buster Scruggs and you kinda under there's all these weird loose ends and the stories just end. Yeah. There's weird loose ends and the stories just end. And then you're like, you have to sit there for a second and be like, what was that trying to communicate to me about the people that were in the story? You soak in it. The movie soaks in you. The movie is is, is trying to, it's because people have weird loose ends. People have weird, we don't get clean endings with people. Yeah. We, yeah, and you're you're they're, you're right. They're I mean, human they, stories. P- part of what we talked about is how specific they are with their characters. They don't allow ad living. They're like every little tick every little um every little like is is baked into the dialogue and 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 that 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 allows these stories to exist around the characters that they're they're happening because they basically in their mind almost put these real well realized characters through whatever plot machinations and the plot machinations stop mattering because it's more about what this person or what this entity or whatever else would do in a given moment. And that, that drives, if there is a plot to drive forward, that's what does it more than just like, and then this, and then this, and then this. Uh, but speaking of, and then this, uh, Peter, I feel like we should just do these movies in chronological order that they came out because, uh, I do think the one that's probably closest to this movie is Inherent Vice, and yeah. that's the one that we can do next week. So next week yeah. we'll be covering uh, another huge director we've never covered on this on this podcast, but uh, our good podcast friend Ethan Warren has done a ton with Paul Thomas Anderson. So not only will we have a great discussion, I think we'll have some very wonderful podcast and book content to refer you to if you want to know more um, uh, as follow-up. So next week, Inherent Vice, then The Nice Guys, and we'll wrap up with Under the Silver Lake on We Love to Watch! Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. 
If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>